God had an end in mind, which is why he created us to be the type of beings that we are. You know, we have this capacity for God. And if you only see your moral actions as a series of individuated, broken down little chunks that you then weigh against this or that law or this or that sense of freedom, you're not going to grow in holiness. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined by Dave End Times Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> Good. I'm not, I don't know why you would say that, End Times Van Vickle. I, well, I, I think because you bring judgment. I think everywhere you go, you bring judgment. Uh, I do. Yeah. And it's, and it's the wrath of the lamb, which is a very Monty Python image, I think. It's like, ah, it's the, it's the lamb. Um, but no, I had to look on my board, and I have uh, all these things about the liturgy, and I want to do a podcast on the liturgy, and podcast number eight is eschatology, end times. So, anywho. But we got a guest today, Dave. We got a guest. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll uh, introduce our wonderful guest here, Dr. Matthew Minerd. Minerd. My nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, why, we, everyone wants to say it differently, but my nerd. <laughs> right, 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 my nerd. Uh, is joining us today. He is a philosopher and Catholic moral theologian, teaches at a Byzantine seminary, uh, has written a bunch. I've read a bunch of your articles in Nova et Vetera and seen uh, your name many times, although this is the first time I'm getting to talk to you kind of in person here. So uh, welcome on, Dr. Minard. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thanks, gentlemen, for uh, welcoming welcome, welcoming me here today, and it's it's an appropriate time for to talk about the end times because, in a sense, here in Holy Week, we are at the center of salvation history, right? So, you know, the end times really begins now. So, you know, it's it's uh, I, not totally imminent eschatology, but like that's what we're gonna be talking about today is like the breaking in of it, even in our souls. So, it's just great. Now, if you if you had to make a percentage of preparing your soul versus buying bullets and tobacco and things like that, what what would the percentage you'd give our audience there? Well, I mean, I'm I am from southwestern Pennsylvania, so I mean, you know, even though we, you know, someone piously should say hundred percent, it's hundred percent preparing your soul, but I believe we also we don't just prepare our soul, kind of, you know, in our mind or in our spirit, right? We do it in our actions, and so you got to have a good twenty percent of, I mean, not only not only tobacco and guns, but also you need to have some coffee as well. Nice, you know, nice, survive, nice. and a couple bottles of bourbon at least for on the other side of of Lent. So, what's your what's your uh, opinion on donuts? Gomer, it's Lent. What are you doing? He's just. I mean, what am I going to be anti anti donut? Yeah, <laughs> all things all things are possible for the virtue of temperance if you find a way to to do to you know to put yeah. them. So. Here's my question about that donut. Where did that come from? Uh, we have uh, a bar at our office, a kitchenette, and we call it the carb bar because every Bible study that happens, they bring food and they take the most unhealthy thing that no one eats and they put it downstairs. And we all try our best. Somewhere around 1130, all wills break down and you see slowly that car bar food just disappearing. Uh, it is it is a classic case of uh, of a lack of willpower in my case. Sometimes I would just grab the donuts and put them in the trash, and people would thank me later. It's kind of a horrible thing. I'm scandalized. I'm scandalized, period. Yeah. 
So uh, let's stop talking about crazy stuff and let's talk about this is Holy Week. This is the time that we are preparing for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the intensification. So everything that we do here at Every Knee Shall Bow is to equip Catholics to be evangelists in the world, whether they're at a parish, a diocese, an apostolate, or in their ordinary lives. And part of what we've realized over the years, um, Dr. Matthew, is that when we are sharing the gospel, um, I, I heard this on a podcast once, if 100 people walked out of the church and you were to say, what do you believe? You would probably get 100 different answers. And that like infuriated and terrified me. So I want to help the people, uh, you know, understand exactly what um, is going on here. And part of that involves an academic approach. So we went through the International Theological Commission's um, on the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. We did a five. Have you heard of that document? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a book that has all that IT, ITC stuff in it. Yeah. Nice, nice. So we went through that document. It was like a multi-part show thing. It was awesome because when we proclaim the gospel, we need to know exactly what the Catholic Church teaches on these major things. And one of the things I realized about one year ago, um, almost exactly to this interview, is in preparing for Lenten reflections and teaching class, I realized that divinization, theosis, deification, whatever phrase we want to use, is central to our moral theology, central to our spiritual theology, but is never talked about. And then I see, you know, so I, I did a whole retreat for my parish staff on, uh, I called it uh, divin on divinization, or deification, excuse me. And then um, your book starts off, Focusing greatly. So we got a book here, Made for God, Made by God, Made for God, Catholic Morality Explained by Ascension Press, the fine folks at Ascension. Let's start off. Let's just talk. Let's just start. Let's start with the end in mind. And let's go through some of the, uh, like, why do you start morality with this this kind of sweeping, beautiful vision? Yeah, because it's something that's forgotten, like, overlooked all the time, like you said. And, um, you know, for your benefit too, just know if I ever look serious here while I'm talking about it, it's just my resting face. Like, but I'm really, <laughs> if anything, I'll be pretty lighthearted. But so uh, <laughs> just to be clear here, sorry, listeners, but, you know, they, they have a doctor on, are they, are they worried, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I still remember, like, so it was a century ago, a Dominican, I was translating. He, he voices this frustra frustration, his name's Ambrose Gardet about how the true Christian life, which is nothing more than to be conformed in the depths of your soul by the mark of the Trinity. That's what grace is, is the indwelling of the, the persons of the Trinity in your soul as the very life that you live. It's a reception of a new life that's not merely kind of like a human gilding of the best morality or, you know, a kind of, you know, just lifting off of your sins. It's, it's to be stamped with the life of God and to be Christified. And he, he makes this comment, he's like, the true Christian life, and then in, in kind of like a, a breakout in the sentence, which is all too unknown, like, and not in the sense of people don't live it, but people don't emphasize this enough, right? You talk about morals, for example, and people tend to think of lists of rules. Now, listen, commandments are very important. I'm not saying that, you know, the, you know, all the various rules and moral absolutes are unimportant. But the framework is not merely just a question of, okay, now I need to figure out the right rules so that I do the right actions. It's how are the actions that I'm doing, which are true and virtuous and, and, and actually divine, flow from God present recreating me in grace. And that that's the vocation of every Christian because we receive sanctifying grace at baptism so as to be not just even conformed to Christ, which that's totally legitimate language, but we're even incorporated into Christ. 
right? The idea of Christ, the head of the mystical body of which we are members, from the great grace of the union in Christ, we call the hypostatic union, right? The, 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 the human nature being drawn to the person of the word, and you have the two natures, divine uh, and human, in the one person of Christ, flows through his humanity, the, the, the fullness of the, the divinity, which then becomes his holiness, which is also our holiness, which, you know, he lives in its most pinnacle moment here this week, as we're recording at least, in the Paschal mystery of the Triduum, and then, right, that that just, you know, surges forth in a way that even more than at the baptism, more than at the transfiguration, at the resurrection, when the whole of his humanity is flooded now with the, 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 the unveiling of his divinity, now in fullness that he has conquered and trampled death, and he ascends to heaven in full glorification, all of everything after that in history is nothing more than this continual drawing of, of mankind into that life. And that's the soul of morality. That's the soul of spirituality as well. And, you know, I, I just think that that's just so often underemphasized. I mean, it's in the tradi- it's in the tradition, East and West, lots of good studies on it. We can see it in the fathers. We can see it in later theologians. We can see it reflected not only in like, you know, Vatican II, but in the reactions of Trent to certain Protestant claims. But how often do people talk about deification, divinization, the, the Greek theosis being made like God, the process of being made like God, not as frequent. But people think that's just like New Age stuff. Right, right. Namaste, the God in me bows yes. to the God in you. Yeah. yeah. Or or they, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's funny because, you know, when you work for a church, there there's so many times you get the question where people are like, just give me the list of rules. Just give me the list of rules. Yeah. And, 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 and usually you politely say like, well, you're not understanding like the heart of Catholic morality. But what you want to say is like, You'd never be able to follow them without, without the 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 relationship, without the theosis. You'd never be able to accomplish that. So why even give it to you? you know? Yeah, think about the Sermon on the Mount. What Christ says there, where he's you know, it's like I told you they said to do this, right? And it's it's not as though he says, oh, get rid of the rule. He's just like take it six times more, amp it up, and it's you know, how can you understand that unless you see it within the context of you know living the life of grace in the sacraments, drawing from you know confession in your in your weakness listening to Christ who teach who's the one who teaches us all of this through the the unfolding of the lectionary and the gospels and the in the liturgy and then yes now okay let's consider the commandments and and how they work but it the life we're to live is not merely just avoiding evil it's actually deepening and refashioning ourselves so much that that all that's left for me to live is Christ let's let St Paul have my last words so yeah and i think that that is the key of christian morality which is why I fell in love with moral theology when I was studying at Franciscan because the idea is the the rules. Like we always focus on, okay, the rules, and sometimes we trash talk them and sometimes it – but the the understanding is, um, I think so beautifully said, I just interviewed Christopher West, um, and they published a book called uh, God is Beauty, which was a retreat by that title that Carol Wojtyla had given in, the, in 1962 to a bunch of artists in Rome. And he has this phrase where he talks about – Unless you have, and I think he said, something of the beatitudes within you, the keeping of rules not only will be lifeless, but you will always live within the edge of sin. Because it's like this notion of rules as like the fence that surrounds the soul. And because we don't have the joy of doing the good, you know, promptly and all that stuff, we just hang out at the edge, you know, and obviously Christopher West always talking about 
sexual morality and whatnot um, in theology of the body, the idea of like how far is too far, like that's the mentality. What what can how late do I have to arrive at mass until it no longer counts? How you know, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like how about how about we fall in love with God so that we want to go to mass. Like that's a fundamentally different position. Like yes, obedience is there to eat, uh, duty is there, right? I I must do this thing. And sometimes we live by the musts and the shoulds. Like I don't feel it, I don't want it, but we do it because we know that there's some greater good there. But the greatest thing is to love it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like and that's where I feel we fail as moral teachers. Yeah, it's like when Christ says, I always do the will of my Father. I mean, it's quite eminently clear that it wasn't like, yeah, I always do the Father's will. <laughs> oh, that's not, that's not the sense you get from our Lord. So if our life is somewhat to reflect his, right, like it shouldn't be like that. So, yeah. Oh, what a great way. What a great way to put it. Yeah. There's like some one-liners in the book that literally was, I, I was like, man, I wish I could go back and teach parishioners like classes over again. And one of them in particular that I realized is a massive oversight on my part was uh, just this like little line. It's, it's, it seems so obvious, but it basically says we're called, it says we're called to divine perfection and not human perfection. Mm. And I think this is so interesting because like everybody wants to know about human interaction like that, like offending someone becomes the ultimate morality or like how you interact with other people. And they kind of like think like, well, if I'm by myself on my own, all alone, I can't sin. I mean, there is this like prevailing attitude now. I, so I, I love that you kind of right off the bat set this out, you know? Yeah, that it's not, you know, there's, I, and I am developing this out of this sort of a beautiful essay by Father Ambrose Gardin. I do cite him as footnotes. And I was editing this book by him that I had translated at the same time. It's very much on my heart, but it very much affected me, where he, he kind of contrasts the true con- conception of the Christian life with other correct but incomplete ones, right? Like Christianity as escape from hell, right? Escape, you know, kind of mm-hmm. escape from punishment. Christianity as, as the highest moral life, like even the most divine kind of gilded, gold-covered moral life, right? But in the end, what you find there is a kind of human perfection. And it could be like Aristotle, like do whatever is the highest, most divine thing within you, like that, you know, be contemplative. So Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, says that, but it's still a kind of human perfection. And even more so, he says, well, how about the last one? The religiously minded person would say worship and religion is the highest thing, good, right? But even that, in a sense, is utterly important for structuring our lives as creatures, right? We recognize the infinite debt we owe to God, and so there's a real justice to, to be recognized in rendering right worship and prayer to the one who is the source of all things. And yet, the the life of grace is actually God calling us to the intimacy of friendship of, of God in us. It is really like the adapting of our souls. It's like taking the, the dry soil of our souls that's hard and just digging into it. This is why asceticism is so important here too, right? But the asceticism is so the seeds of divine life can grow within us or to mix metaphors, you know, so that you can create a kind of homestead um, in which, you know, the friendship of, you know, he who said, I call you not servants, but I call you friends, can, can really share with you the same love in a kind of mutual reciprocity. His love is my love, and my love is his love. And hence, like St. Thomas Aquinas talks about charity, the love of God poured into our hearts, as being most understandable by friendship. 
mm. but supernatural friendship. And so our, our perfection is a divine perfection, not merely uh, the best human perfection. It's not merely like that grace merely helps us be the best you can be, right? It, it actually helps you be more than you ever could be as a creature ever because it really is the divine life, like in its mystery. And so our life here below is it really a beginning of, you're saying about eschatology, it's the beginning of the end now because grace is the beginning of glory in us. And there's no hiatus at the end. The last breath, as Father Gardet says at one point, the last breath of your life on earth is but one or less beating of your heart on earth, actually, divinized by grace here on earth is exactly then going to be one as it emerges if you are indeed in heaven amid the splendors of the saints. It is the same life. And it's this, yeah, it's real, the passage is real beautiful in heaven. Yeah. So. so one of the things that I've been trying to do is to communicate this understanding of uh, I just remember the title of the retreat that I gave to my parents. I was called On Divine Filiation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, just to talk about how embedded this is in our spiritual theology, there's a, a famous story where um, a, a theologian, I can't remember who it was, was in, he was in the Opus Dei movement. And uh, Father Jose Maria Escrava was sitting in the back and the guy didn't even know he was there. And so he's giving this lecture and he's like, the essence of Opus or the founding concept of Opus Dei is, and then he hears someone in the background and he goes, <clears throat> and he cleared his voice and he looked and he realized it was, it was St. Jose Maria Escrava. And he's like, yes, he goes, that's not true. The, the, the founding uh, doctrine or spirit or, or whatever is divine filiation. Everything of Opus Dei proceeds from divine filiation. And I think that's so beautiful. So filiation, for those of you who don't know, Latin word for basically the action of becoming sons of God, right? Sons and daughters of God. And so in this, in the heart of it, yesterday, I'm talking to a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old who are, uh, I was doing their assessment to prepare them for the mysteries of Easter Vigil. And the whole point, like, I don't even know how to talk about, it, it's funny, like, Five years ago, I maybe would have mentioned something about it because something, something, Scott Hahn, something, something, covenant theology. But now, right, like, hey, we're all children of God, beloved, so we are, yay, you know. But now it's like everything, you. See, it's one of those interpretive keys that once you unlock it in Scripture, you see it everywhere. And so I'm sitting there and I go, why are you going to be baptized? Like, why do we do it? And then the kids, you know, they give me the good, the good answers, right, like, Wash away original sin, give me the life of grace. I'm like, okay, what is that? What does it mean? You know, and so we just talk probably for 20 minutes to a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old about divine filiation. Like you now are in Christ. You belong to him. And they're, and you know, uh, it, it is funny because when we don't talk in that language, we don't give them the point. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to play football with no end zone. And it's like, well, you know the rules of the game. And it's like, yeah, but... What's the game? Yeah, but no, it's no progress. <laughs> yeah, it's like people running around on a field, but they, it would if if all you sort of knew were the 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 rules for everything in like the middle of the field, right? Like, but you, you didn't have a sense of what's gonna what what you're doing at the end. It would turn out to be rather weird because yes. people actually, like, for instance, if you didn't know where the ends were, you would you would all of a sudden have like the side that has the ball going backwards because mm -hmm. they didn't really know, like, they just knew the rules of like what not to do. Yeah. Um, which is really funny because that's what it's like when you watch Dave play football. You're yeah. like, does this guy not know there's an end zone? By, by the way, <laughs> well, that is true. I was on the world's worst football team, but don't worry, I'm like this. I'm like, don't give me the ball. Don't give me the ball. Don't give me the ball. I do individual sports. Nothing with balls. My mother used to say. But by the way, it has gotten really weird. 
because we did not give them that yeah. end zone. I mean, we just de- we yeah. destroyed it. I mean, you know, we it, it, things have gotten very weird in the parish setting because they don't understand what's at stake here at all. Oh, that is scary. So, uh, three years ago, I realized my parish had never taught a systematic morality class to the adults. We've never had an eight week thing. We've had hundreds of Bible studies. Mm-hmm. But we, so I have my buddy um, offer the class. He's getting his doctorate at University of St. Thomas. And so I was like, you know, you would be awesome to give this class. And he did. And it was great. Um, but it was the first time we've ever had that. They didn't. He didn't have a textbook. I think we reference um, Morality, the Catholic View by Father Survey Pinkers, which is his lighter weight thing. But um, we just kind of follow the catechism's outline. And when you start with the catechism, right? I mean, paragraph one of the catechism is that God had an end in mind, which is why he created us to be the type of beings that we are. You know, we have this capacity for God. And if you only see your moral actions as a series of individuated, broken down little chunks that you then weigh against this or that law or this or that sense of freedom, you're not going to grow in holiness. Like, I think, like, Kantianism is a brilliant satanic forgery, Right. Because it seems so close to, you know, hardcore, traditional, old school morality, the following of the law and the doing of your duty. Yeah. You know, it's the law. But you know what that the next step for that often becomes then as soon as you're not like in that because that 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 Kantian whatever strength goes away pretty fast. It becomes where does my does my freedom have its rights against this law? Yeah. That's actually what, now, in history, I mean, and this is not me being a Byzantine Catholic saying negative things. Western theology, because of certain things that happened right after the Reformation, moral theology became that. Yeah. It really did. Other Pinkers is writing against that. A lot of folks in the Dominicans, actually, at the turn of the century, were actually all kind of against this. That it was, where does the law have its rights, and where does freedom kind of, like, have its rights? Like, you know, where yeah. does the law bind? Where where does freedom have its We're rights? talking probabilism, probabiliorism. We're that's talking. That's right. That's it. This is the... This is the Equiprobabilist podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's what got uh, uh, San Alfonso's Liguori. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. And it's just us. Uh, it's what got San Alfonso's Liguori named the patron of moral theologians is because he came up with this, the struggle between. So for those of you who don't know, listen in, there was this like, okay, you have the law and then you have human freedom. And then you have rigorism, you always have to obey the law. And then you have laxism, you always have to follow your freedom. And then in the as middle, it was... You, as long as you have one excuse, basically, right. yeah. is the way that goes. Yeah. Yep. yeah, which is why I'm eating a donut, because I have an excuse. Today's my patron saint's feast day during Lent. <laughs> I made that up. I just wanted to eat a donut. Oh, uh, <laughs> I was like, today's actually the feast of Gemma, and she's mine, not yours. <laughs> so close. Yeah, but this is beautiful. So um, if you're going to approach this at a parish setting, typical parish, not in a classroom in terms of these are people who are going to read 200 pages of assigned reading. How do you approach this for the Holy Poloi? Yeah, yeah. Well, how do I? Yeah, like how would you, like like, let's say you're going to offer. Yeah, if I'm offering, yeah, like if I'm offering a class, like, you know what I actually start with? Like, because let's let's do a meditation on the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Because what that does is it opens up the issue of like, okay, so what does it look like to have divine perfection, right? And you set out the end. You use that to tease out the end, right? To see now, oh, 
there's something here about the the life of Christians, which is 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 marked with this divine perfection of the Father, which is marked with the kind of sur- uh, merciful suffering. What does this mean? And now, how can I lay out? You know, maybe I always try to ground myself in Scripture. That's what I do in the book to keep the book very down to earth and non technical. Right. Is is to to pull some themes from like Saint John and Saint Paul about like life in Christ, and and you know to to lay out how the early the earliest Christians who actually were you know. They were writing the inspired books, right? You know, lay out a view of Christianity, which is above all a life in Christ and getting rid of everything else. And so you start with a kind of like laying out of those most basic central themes before you deal with anything about virtues and vices, let alone the particular cases of where precepts are. You know, you, you tease the problem of how was baptism as divine filiation understood just very naturally by the early church? Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's sort of like where to start. And I even kind of how I structured the book was like those general principles are the most important. And hence, we're going to start with that, you know, that understanding, you know. And like, so what does like the this new commandment I give to you? Well, that's only understandable within the context of, you know, to actually live the life of love that is mine as Christ. And so then to tease that out again by by some of the themes out of St. Paul. You know, to really try and just make that clear first and foremost. Like every single time you're talking about a virtue or commandment, it's in this framework where it's, you know, quite literally that is Christ in you. Yeah. That is really Christ in you. And like let the theologians deal with the details of how that doesn't end up with some weird new agey. Trust me, the, the theology of the church is not that. Um, you, you sort of start at the scriptural level and you just see that that is the conviction of early Christians. Um you know, and I might even, you even see it in the Father's, the great exchange formula, yeah. right? Of course, everyone knows about Christ, Christ, God became man in Christ so that man might become God. That takes all kinds of different forms, such that even some of the, in some of the debates over Christ being God, one of the arguments really was a kind of soteriological argument. Like, if Christ really isn't God and really isn't eventually as articulated, the, the, the person of the word, we can't be divinized, but we know that's the case. Right. So it's just as much conviction about life in Christ, which then becomes the argument on behalf of Christ must be divine because we know that we live some, you know, this divine life in God, that this is sure from the time of St. Paul onward. So, you know, so that exchange stuff is often very powerful as well, though, to sort of to sort of meditate on the mysteries of Christ, because really the, the mysteries of Christology are the context for understanding our divine life, because it's the incorporation into Christ. And so you try to mm-hmm. use that as well, because you need to almost like break down the barriers with people first, right? Like hit them across the face with like, no, what does life in, in Christ mean? Not just merely, you know, uh, a kind of moral imitation. Uh, it's not really that. Yeah. By the way, you, you, you know, saying... It's a little bit of a terrifying statement to say, well, he must be God because we know we experience this divine affiliation because you, we better be a sign of God then. I mean, our life had better be a sign of divine affiliation so that we can say, yes, there is a God who is affiliating us in a sense, right? Yeah. Well, think about that as our, our vocation, you know, it's the vocation of all Christians is, you know, that we are the mystical presence of Christ in the world. Now, he's operative. It's not like he handed it off right. after the ascension, right? But what the ascension... I'm t- I got and then it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like, Peace out. I did did my part, you know. Um, but it's literally Christ in us. Like, uh, the whole of Christianity is suffused with sacramentality, right? Like, the, the bodily being the presence of the 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 invisible right well the mystical to say the church is the mystical body of christ is not like 
it hovers up here above the the society that is the church, and then there's like the visible part. No, it's saying it's it's Christ now risen with the Father, sacramentally present. This is a very dear theme of the Second Vatican Council: is the Church herself is a kind of sacrament of God because it is the it's the presence of Christ's humanity now by way of you know ecclesial being. We might say, mm-hmm. well, that's not just lived by you know, priests and monks, right? right? And I mean, I, I replaced my heart for the, the monks. I, I was three years of Benedictine, actually. But all of us, by grace, really are to be, you know, it's not just being maudlin. You know, we are to be Christ for others in a way that others won't experience Christ, you know, unless all of the various mediations are there. Of course, the most primary and central mediation is, of course, the sacraments of the church and at its center, the 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 Eucharist, Right. But that's meant to then radiate out and 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 to to make the whole world the whole world is created to be you know a sign that set of signs that lead us actually to union with God right and if a, in a sense if all of creation is not which by which would means like our li- living our lives in creation doesn't lead everything basically like to this Eucharistic center well hey like Saint Paul says like creation's got good reason to groan because it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing like creation is not. Is, is then itself being undermined by our sinfulness. So it's like not just that other people don't see, don't, don't see uh, and experience the, the divine light that is supposed to be in us, but we even like upend all of creation because creation was made for us and us for Christ and Christ for God. So it kind of gets messed up whenever we just pull that link out. It's like, oh, that's all right. Yeah. All the world, we just kick it to the curb. So, sorry, I'm like... Yeah, which is why, yeah, I mean, it's like why Gnosticism is so repugnant to Christianity because it's about like ultimately the foundational goodness of this creation, especially as St. Paul says, for what can be known about God, he's made it evident to them, namely through the things that he's made. So that creation itself is used by God for us type of creatures to communicate his divine power to and through, and then ultimately to bring us back into him. Right. And, and a, a, a Gnosticism or this kind of neo Gnosticism, like, Materialist C.S. Lewis had a great line where he called it the materialist magician. Like the the modern man is a materialist magician. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in God. They're strict materialists, but they still crave power. And so they'll use whatever they term magic, whether that's technology or selling their souls to some darker thing. Um, the idea at its core is uh, they just won't yield themselves to God. Like they're trying, and you have that great line from St. Paul in, in, in Romans chapter one, where he says, um, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for things resembling birds and creatures, you know, all that stuff. It's like, we got the creator and we don't want him because we want us. So we project our worship of ourselves out onto creation. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with power. So I worship Mars, the God of war. I'm obs- you know, and we, we do this and we've always done this. Mm-hmm. And it, it is fascinating because even when God is intervening with Israel uh, through the prophet, I think it was prophet Jeremiah, he's like, what what nation is like this nation? Like, they've never had the gods, you know, intervene in their lives. I've done everything for you. Yet you're like running after all these false gods. And th- he's like, well, show me one nation that gives up their idols for some other nation's idols. None of them. And they're not even gods. And it's fast because that's what I keep saying when I'm talking with atheists. I'm like, this is how you know it's true. <laughs> it's because people are running from God because they don't want God. They want to be gods. 
But God is going to make them gods. It's yeah. just on his terms. Yeah, and that's a powerful line by itself. And God is going to make them gods. And yet it's like it terrifies us away in a sense because we have how much we have to – then we die to ourselves. We don't annihilate ourselves. But the whole of who we are we hand over by way of like, you know, it, to be filled with something that, that, that's not from us. But boy, we want to just turn back in on ourselves and, and, and be the ones who, you know, know good and evil. I mean it's the ancient – the ancient temptation is everywhere because basically you're either in Adam who fell prey for it or in Christ. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think that the timing of this book is so good. I, you know, I'm thinking about this listening you guys speak because there is kind of a, I don't want to get killed by people. Like, you know, I know people have really benefited from some of these movements in the church, but there's a little bit of a stoic strain going through the Catholic church mm-hmm. where it's like, I'm going to man up and then I'm going to offer it up to God. Right. And it's like, eh. There's something that leaves me unsatisfied with that. You know, it's like if it's not wrapped entirely in relationship, if the entire thing isn't isn't that, I I just it doesn't work. It never ever works, and it's not the way of the saints. It's not the way, be you know. And I I just I so I love the fact that this book, you know, it clearly shows like, look, it's all about relationship. Otherwise, why do any of this, right? Because we don't care about some kind of stoic manliness. We care about our hearts being united to Christ, you know, to being consumed by by the consuming fire. Yeah, you know, the the uh, you know, the the kind of manliness that one wants, right? In this sort of Aristotle has the image of the uh, magnanimous man. He's got this low voice and he's, <laughs> he walks along, he doesn't trifle with small things, right? Because he does great he does great deeds, right? Well, if you really live the Christian life and you, you're just, you know, you you allow yourself by both the, the church's practices throughout the liturgical year, through asceticism and just the the call to, to generosity in all the various walks of life. If you've got kids, you've got a lot of opportunity for this too, and, and your spouse and your community, etc., that you empty yourself out and you really purify yourself of attachment to the passions, which is a kind of stoic thing to talk about. You're actually meant, though, to be more and more ready to be buoyed by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to just be, in a sense, blown along the way by divine winds. Like St. Paul talks about the spiritual man, you know, is judged by none and judges all things. I mean, he's not saying the spirit, A, he's not saying the spiritual man is out there like telling everyone who's sinning. And B, he's also not saying there aren't any rules for the spiritual man. Like this is another kind of Gnostic temptation in the history of the church. No, what he's saying instead is, like you just abound in divine love in all sorts of little teeny ways throughout your life with a kind of joy and readiness. And yeah, it is, it has all the best of that sort of like, you know, you know, manly confidence if we're speaking just among men, you know, but without that pernicious stoic effect. And I'm not necessarily, like you said, you got kind of nervous. It's like, I'm not really so much worried about, you know, who's pernicious or not, because right. I, I really don't have an opinion there, because some of this is just a reaction to the flaccidity and self-indulgence of our culture is where this is coming from. Yeah. But the risk, just like the risk of how we're talking, you know, if we if we keep pushing this too much, right, it can then turn into relationship and feel good, right? Yeah. That's how people would accuse us. I get it in comments sometimes yeah. whenever I kind of put the precepts secondary. Still, the relationship is primary because that's because it's what happened that he he becomes incarnate and responds from the silence of eternity to be a person a, you know a divine person here among us not merely during his his time before the ascension but for the rest of time like the relationship is is primary and then gives it it, it explains the asceticism for example yeah. so asceticism the practice of um 
you know, purifying, purifying ourselves and our attachments. Um, that's not the whole of Christianity, right? Like if you did that, like, you know, the monks of the desert can sometimes read like that, right? But sure. the first conference of John, John Cashin, very influential text on all the monks of like both East and West, um, he makes the point like, well, what's the end you're looking for? And the, you know, all these practices, this is secondary. That doesn't mean they're unessential. The monks were pretty ascetical, but it's, it's for the sake of, you know, achieving the heavenly life. Yeah. Which actually. Yeah. So you can become all fire. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of manly. Yeah. That's kind of manly. Like being all the <laughs> love flamethrower. Right. It's like, oh, that's pretty manly. Yeah. I think, it, I think, I think it's like, you know, like first things first kind of a thing. My, my oldest son, Sam, you know, saw the the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, you know, and I was like, sure, you can read it, you know, and, he, he, you know, I mean, for a young guy, it's like, oh, man, this is awesome. You know, he, he says all the right things and everything. And I was like, after a while, I was like, you know, I, I think I'm going to just take this book back because I don't know if I fully communicated it. Like, I'm seeing more of a change from that than I am from, like, the gospel being preached to him. So it's like, you know, I, I want to make sure that it's in right order, you know, uh, it, yeah. I could just imagine him one day turning to you and just being like, Father, I care not whether I am hot or cold, apathy in all things. One day I will put you to death because justice demands it. You know, so many Stoics, there are so many Roman Stoics. It's funny, like, Stoicism was started in Greece, but flowered in Rome. And uh, I was reading this guy who was accounting for it, and he was talking about all these Roman governors who were Stoics. And there always comes a time where they're putting their kid to death because they're they're these like rich, arrogant, you know, kids who aren't disciplined and they do some crime. But part of it is like I'm putting you to death because that's what the law demands and they don't shed a tear. They just do their their duty. They have pure apathy. And it's like, look at these guys. You know, these are the heroes. And it's like that. That's not who Jesus called you to be. That is not who Jesus called you to be. Um Okay, so I want to pivot a little bit and talk um, about liturgy and its connection to morality. Um, I, I'm going to make a bold statement, and you can feel free to walk it back however you want. I believe right now, and this is this is as far as I've contemplated this with my Aristotelian awesomeness. I believe that the Eastern Catholic churches are going to single-handedly save the world by reteaching Western Latin Catholics what liturgy is. Because I think I think we have forgotten the divine center of liturgy. We have completely unmoored ourselves. And I and I mean like even people who want to recover the you know traditional Latin mass or whatever. Like there are so many elements where we were incapable of seeing. That's what Romano Guardini talked about. Just perceive. The modern man might be incapable of perceiving. And I think it's we're we're unmoored from our past. And I really do believe the more I spend time in Eastern theology, and by that I only mean Chinese Buddhist. Just kidding. But uh the, <laughs> <Only> <laughs> the more nothing, nothing else. Yeah, uh, it's really weird. It's really it's really focused. Um, no, but the more I spend time in Eastern theology, especially Christology, atonement theology, all this stuff, the more I see everything is liturgy. Whereas in the past, for me, liturgy made me roll my eyes and be like, oh, I don't want a liturgy war. I don't want people talking about it. It's not nice for me to have a guitar in mass or I really want to hear Gregorian chant. But liturgy is life. 
like, and you can't, the, the, we love in the West our fine lines and solid distinctions. And we kind of have built, especially in the last 500 years, an allergy to mystery. But the more you understand, the more it's the Paschal mystery that radiates through it all. You know? So I'll stop talking. So yeah, because you're, yeah, so you're both canonically Roman Catholics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Canonically. Yeah, yeah. because that's, I'm just saying that from a, you know, maybe you practice elsewhere on occasion or more frequently than not. But only, only the ordinariate. So uh, that's my. Uh, you're very well. Okay, so living in the West, still Western. Though. In, in high school, I went to, I went to Byzantine church. In high school, I went to Byzantine. Oh, okay. Well, I'm just because, but you're now mostly in the West. So the point is that it's like I got to be careful not to be the snotty Byzantine who, like, I have to be the Byzantine <laughs> who walks you back in a way. But I can say this: I grew up Roman. I grew up Roman Catholic. I actually was in the trad world. I was in scholas and whatnot. I just never was liturgically at home there. The wet. Okay, I'm gonna just. You can walk me back, but I'll, I will be. I'll be sufficiently careful. It's a different different sort of claim, though. The West, first and foremost, is only going to really find a kind of, I think, find itself where it should be liturgically if it takes seriously all the best elements of the liturgical movement. There were there was wacky stuff in the liturgical movement, but the best of the liturgical movement, which was kind of hijacked in the West, right, let's be right. honest, um, that stuff at the turn of the century that leads up to, you know, the period up to like 30s. Let's just leave yeah. it to there. And sort of forget the stuff after that just because it's like the wars get in the way and the wars kind of like upend everything and everyone starts bickering because they're mad at each other. There was a good movement from the time of like Solemn onward and to and the work done there to try to more and more make the point that like spirituality is not individ, is not this individualistic, you know, sort of Jesuit thing. There's a beautiful uh, letter by Columba Marmion, uh, Dom, blessed Dom Marmion, where he – you know he he's very warm. He says I was I was reared by Jesuits as a young man. So Marmion is an, an abbot, I guess, for listeners um, at Merid Sioux, and I forget where he was prior before then. But um, Maria Locke, I think. No, doesn't matter. But he um, <laughs> he Mont uh, Cesar, Mont Cesar. But anyway, he uh, he has a number of conferences on on Christ as the perfection of of uh, Christians and of monks of priests, meditation on the mysteries of Christ's life, and. Uh, he he writes to this Jesuit, basically reading the riot act to him, saying, you guys were my high school teachers, for example, and yet this debate that's happening between one of my monks in my community and you guys in writing, where you're basically being accused of writing off the liturgy as being the main spirituality, is absolutely correct. And he said, you know, and the way he goes so far as to like say, he's like, yeah, the, the exercises are important for conversion, but living the mysteries only happens in the midst of the liturgical life. And then he starts reading out like examples of where Jesuit authors basically said the liturgy was for beginners, which is really disastrous because it's the life, it's like tradition lived today. So Marmion is, and he's a blessed, right? He's therefore part of this whole context of a kind of trying to reappropriate in the West you know, the liturgy at the center of spirituality against this very modern, and it's, listen, the West faced different things than than the East did. And so it developed as a kind of defense mechanism against modernity, certain things, and it became more and more individualized yeah. in its spirituality. Um, and then you had the the cataclysms of the, of the, the 60s and 70s and 80s that just really, you know, like cut out the centrality of mystery and something different is going on in liturgy. Um, and the East has the, so let's take the East and set aside our Orthodox brethren, just so we can understand this, even from a Catholic perspective, 
the East has had really a real renaissance of, of reappropriating its tradition since the time of Vatican II. Because actually Vatican II, we had a different experience of it because it was just, we were called to go back to our traditions. And I think there's a kind of balance that's not reactive in the East. And this is what I think where I agree with you. And because I'm going to get in trouble with the trads because I, you know, I'm toughest on the trads because I left them, but not because I was angry at them. I felt so at home in the Ruthenian church, even though we're like the lowest church of all the Byzantine churches, simple Slavic church. And uh, the, the traditionalist movement is actually, in my opinion, making, you know, a series of, um, you know, legitimate critiques regarding what has happened just like to the whole liturgical culture. But it's also this, this its own inorganic looking, like, it's trying to recreate something in a way that it's also kind of, like there's an unevenness that comes from that that's different than trying to live the liturgy as it has been received, right? I think, because I think the West, the West never, never dealt after the Reformation. It probably, I mean, there were changes, but I don't think that it really totally saw the way that, that the liturgy had been so clericalized that it separated the the people and the celebrant, and it, it creates these oddities that exist in in the traditional Latin Mass because you really sense that it is just the priest's action, and that's you don't sense the the organic liturgical action connection. And that's what makes so many trads mad when they hear oh, yeah, it. I can't but wait I think that that, for the emails, the realization <laughs> of that fact is what was was one of these things that drove the liturgical movement, which was trying to make liturgy central, and in its better moments when it didn't get wonky to also. You know, think about well, what is the the ceremonial form? Ceremony should match the people's interaction. You know, I mean, there's a normal thing to say like, what's what is active participation? No, it's not clapping and strumming of guitars, but it's also not praying the rosary at mass. I'm sorry, it is not that. It's not bad. I'm not saying people are doing something wrong, but that creates this world in which are you really in the liturgical action, right? Right. You're doing a devotional in the yeah, or you know, or like at church, but not during this because this is where. All the beauties of the calendar of the year are being unfolded for you. And what that looks like, I don't care. That's not my thing to, that's not my, I'm not a Roman Catholic, not mine to deal with. I think that the East, now finally to finish my long rant, uh, <laughs> ramble, uh, the East has the, does have the benefit of being able to just do it without being part of a political, like a movement in the church that's kind yeah. of tied up with kind of the, all the vexation and anger. You know, I have this hope for my young guys who are getting ordained. And it's like, guys, go out there and just live our liturgy. You've got, you, we have a great rector at our seminary who loves the liturgy and really trains them. I'm jealous of them this week because I can't go to Pittsburgh because I'm a cantor. But they're doing all the Holy Week liturgies. People are like, welcome to go to them. It's a busy schedule. But it's like, just do that in your parish now in a way that's appropriate so you don't overwhelm the people. Monastic use is not parish use. But like, like and just do it. And you'll teach the, you'll teach the West a bunch of lessons from the patristic era that got lost in modernity. Just do it. Just do it without any kind of like polemics. So I think you're, what you said is foundationally true. I wanted to walk it back slightly so that I didn't come across as the Byzantine. Then I got nervous because <laughs> I waded into Western waters. That was great. That was great. Um, yeah, that was great. I think you're right. I do think you're right, though. I mean, and that was some of the sense of the reformers. It just kind of went a little bit haywire. Um, Oh, read Marmion. Go read Marmion in the West. I'm on a Marmion tear right now. Marmion's great. Yeah. And he's, he's just this wonderful, like, just on the borders of kind of like the older scholastic kind of stuff with the immense scriptural scriptural and liturgical focus. Yeah. Yeah. Union with God is a great starting oh, I place. Love yeah. So my, so my copy of Commentary on Divine Liturgy, Gomer, uh, the foreword is written by a Western 
person and he literally says what you just said that the the east will reteach us liturgy really oh interesting well i i say this because um i was studying dostoevsky right and i'm reading his um crime and punishment and the great line in the introduction said the thing that made him so love slavic culture is that it didn't go through the enlightenment and that's why he thought, you know, Slavic culture was superior to Western culture because it didn't have to endure what the West endured with the apostasy and secularization and all this stuff. And so when he goes and visits the West and he spends time there and he reads from them, he sees an inability to think correctly, to think with the gospel, right? And uh, it's almost it's almost as if, like, the shenanigans from the Reformation um, on on all sides— ultimately leads to this moment where it's like we've become detached because half the Catholic Church want to be evangelicals. The other half of the Catholic Church wants to just adopt a a form of the Mass, whether it's a 62 Roman Missal or the pre-55 Missal and all of these things. And um, it, we we absolutize certain things about the tradition beca- because because— I love this line about hipsters. We're nostalgic for a past, not our own. And it's like, I, there's something back there that I need to recover. And, but it's not, it hasn't been a part of my life. So I need to kind of shape it, but it, there's an artificiality to it. You know what I mean? Like there's this artificiality to just trying to graft on this. Now, I, I don't think it has to be that way. I think it can become that way. And so that's where I see, you know, the, the light from the East. Right. I, and I really do believe this, like, the recovery of living the liturgy, living within a liturgical tradition. I mean, the Roman Missal, the general instruction of the Roman Missal is predicated upon living this liturgy within its traditional context. But now we're so far, 70 years we haven't been doing that. And now it's like, well, how do we resolve this thing? And it's like, well, we're supposed to follow whatever. It's like principle number 43 or whatever. But we can't because we haven't been living it at all, even remotely. So, anywho, we got to take a commercial break. When we come right back uh, with Dr. Matthew, we're going to discuss one more thing about his book. And then Dave is going to adios. And then I have a follow-up episode that will come out Easter during the Easter octave. So, we'll be right back. Uh, If you want to email us, email us at eksb at essentialpress.com. And we will be sure to talk about you behind your back. I mean, on the show. I'm Jeff Cavins. I wrote The Activated Disciple because I know how easy it is to practice the faith and to study it, but what if we lived our entire lives without doing what we learned? God doesn't just call us to be students. He calls us to be disciples, to look and live like Jesus. If you yearn for a life that moves beyond just studying and believing, if you yearn to become an activated disciple, then this book is for you. The Activated Disciple teaches you how to take your faith to the next level so you can become an instrument for God to transform the world. To order The Activated Disciple, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. Welcome back to Every Knee Shall Bow. We love being a part of the Ascension Press community. I hope you heard about some great products there during the break. Uh, one of these great products, we have uh, the author on with us, Dr. Matthew, my nerd. Uh, made by God, made for God. Honestly, I, I can't say enough about this book. It was like the kind of book that when you're reading it, I, I wish I could go back to my you know 15-year career of parish work and reteach morality uh, using this because 
uh, you just see um, it, you're farther down the rabbit hole for sure on this, uh, thinking about this more clearly. Uh, and one of the things I was impressed about, uh, Dr. Matthew was, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm surrounded by professional theologians, um, to the point that I maybe might go crazy one day. And, um, and, uh, you know, they all, the, the pub, they normally publish for each other. And this book was so clearly published. Like to me, I, I immediately was like, well, this guy obviously knows what's going on in the, in the, in the church population. So I guess, uh, you know, I'd love to know, like, what, what was the impetus? Like what, what put it on your heart to, to take this project on? Well, partially it was uh, what um, Father Deke and um, John Harden bothering me over and over again to get me to do this. Um, but, uh, you know, as I was writing it, like what inspired it then as, as I was doing it. So I've taught my intro to moral theology class, however much time for my SEMs. And for seminarians even, you're not teaching academics. You're not teaching people who will become academics. So I'm already kind of working in a world where I'm teaching those who will become the teachers of the faith, Right. And, you know, if I'm doing this, I know I'm writing for a general audience. I grew up, I'm a professor, I have a PhD, I've done all this translating work, blah, 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 right? I mean, I I grew up in a very blue-collar household. I go to a very blue-collar parish. I live in a very poorer area in western Pennsylvania. I don't have, you know, it's easy to get caught up in wanting to be a professor, right? But yeah. there's a sense in which my, my class, te- like my class of people, professors, like they, they drive me insane with their tedium. And so I thought, <laughs> I, I want to write something that if, what if like, you know, I would have picked up some kind of like tedious morals book when I was a kid, go into kind of a, a less than good, we'll say, you know, public high school in my case, right? And, and, and you know, you get a bunch of like highfalutin stuff that, yeah, may even like quote scripture and whatnot, but that that doesn't work to communicate in a clear way and with a real joy and just a per the personal mark of a, a teacher speaking to the reader, like I forget where my sentence started there. I apologize, but you know I get the book like that, and I, I don't have something that was written in the tone that I wrote in. It would be really unfortunate. I wanted to write for people who could pick a book up on moral theology and see. I've had this throwaway line I've been using ever since the not throwaway. It's like it comes to my lips line is what I should say, uh, but it's throwaway in the sense that it felt throwaway when I said it first time for ascension that the truths of faith are truths we live. And I heard it in one of the videos. I did not mean to say it. I just said it because it kind of was like nervous filling time. And I was like, oh, wow. That is actually like the 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 thing that that guided a lot of this, I think. I came from, I saw it in my own eyes. I was like, that came from somewhere deeper in you than your nervousness. You were recording that video. Um, and, and, and if that's the truth, right, well, then all the faithful deserve to have something written at a level that's not arrogant or it's not technical not all technical things are arrogant right but is is written in an yeah. interpersonal way that breaks open the truths of the traditional faith about divinization and the virtues and and makes it clear for them yeah and i, I really wanted to, to it's it's sort of like doing a kind of pastoral work that you know we have this kind of quasi pastoral thing we do all of us lay people who who do this kind of work yeah yeah so sorry, there was a little stem winder in there, but yeah. <laughs> no, there's a great line that Dr. Han said one time that I loved. Um, a woman said it to him, so I guess he was kind of bragging. But uh, you must know something so well to state it so simply, and I think that's absolutely the truth. I've heard scientists say that about you know the laws in physics. Like if it doesn't fit on an index card, it's not true. Um, in terms of like these grand physics theories and, and the idea of that simplicity has a beauty. 
all of its own that is inherent to our comprehensive knowledge of it. And reading this book where you start with God and the Christian, you know, the, the image of God that I'm made in, I'm made in the image of God for a purpose. Sin is there, but if all we do is focus on not sinning, all we're going to do is sin because we're going to be preoccupied. We're not going to choose the good that is above sin, right? We're not going to see what it means to lay down my life in love for my Lord and my neighbor. Like, we're not going to see that. We're going to see as well, you know, I had an excuse. I came up with a reason, you know, and we're going to play these games that Christ did not die on a cross that we're going to celebrate this Friday. He did not die on a cross so that we could play silly games with morality. He died on a cross so that we would know how to live, how to die, and how to keep his death alive in our every action decision willing. So um, I want to thank you for coming on. We're going to do, uh, we're going to record back-to-back episodes. We're going to do a part two that's going to come out next week, um, Holy Week. Uh, Dave, you're going to run, right? You got to run. You got to scamper. Nice. But I'm going to stay on here, and then I'm going to just pelt you with Thomistic theology questions. Uh, and that's all we're going to do for the rest of the next hour. Uh, <laughs> anything you want to say, Dave? Thank you so much, for Dr. Matthew, for coming on. And uh, everybody should take a look at Ascension Press, made by God, made for God. It, it, and I got it on Amazon, so it must be available anywhere right now. So. But also Ascension, ascensionpress.com slash Catholic Morality. Right. Boom. Boom. All right, y'all. God bless. <laughs>